0: Now entering Nerdist.com.
1: Mission Log A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 56. Spock's Brain
0: Show and Show. What is Show? Show is, of course, Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Can Ray.
2: And I'm John Champion. Each week, we open up the cranium, get out the tools, and poke around in the gray matter to see what's going on. We want to analyze the meanings, morals, and messages and figure out what from Star Trek can stand the test of time. Some are wonderful, some are terrible, and some are Spock's brain. <laughs> I like that because now
0: we don't know where you're going to go. We don't. You know, you might Not know, at you all. You might think this is great. You might think this is terrible or you might just go, oh, that happened.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> right. I, I, I have to tell you that ever since we began doing Mission Log and mm. talking to people who listen to Mission Log, there's just been a lot of anticipation around, oh, oh, wait, you're going to get to Spock's brain. Yeah. Yeah, you you kind just see it in the headlights, like like driving down a, a, a an empty highway at night, and then just out of nowhere, just the headlights are right in front of you, and, and it's sort of sort of that feeling, that anticipation. I've had a lot of anticipation about this episode, Ken. I'm not going to lie to you. Now, do you think no, you've had or listeners have? I think all of the above. Okay, because I because honestly,
0: I you know just take them as they come. You know, mm-hmm. I, mean, I try to anyway. I'm, I don't. I hope I don't look forward with you know particular trepidation or or particular excitement to an episode. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to come to it as
2: fresh as I can. Um, yeah, you, you maintain sort of a Vulcan like dispassionate attitude towards star trek going into an episode i respect that well it's only logical isn't it <laughs> it is
0: <laughs> but i mean that said i i've actually sort of gotten like i don't know if people are thinking that we're going to rip it to shreds or that there's just so much here that we're going to have fun but i, I mm-hmm. it, it seems like you know as we've approached this episode there almost seems to be it's like a combination of excitement and dread one might say um that it brings what is it that it brings pleasure and not pain and pleasure because that's, a, <laughs> that's the queen song. What's the, what, what does it say
2: though? Right. Uh, uh, oh, Oh, the, the, exact phrase is, um, pain uh, and delight, pain and delight. There we yes. go. People True. seem to
0: be anticipating a bit of, uh, pain and delight, you know, like I'm some kind of eye more over here. Right. Or, <laughs> and, or, or, morgue. I can't remember which it is I'm supposed to be a uh, morgue. Oh, okay. Morgue. Well, no, yeah. is the morgue the bringer of pain and delight?
2: No, the imorg isn't bringing it. Yeah, yeah see, right. so
0: like I'm some kind of imorg over like here. Like, there's some kind
2: of imorg. Wow, you are like a total morg right now. <laughs> well, of all the things that we do anticipate about Mission Log and about Star Trek, I think uh, I think we can anticipate some trivia. It, it, you know, it seems it seems almost inevitable. It does. So um, I want to talk a little bit about Spock's brain, but I think particularly what we need to talk about is this this chasm we have left now between. Season two and season three, the hiatus, and then what we kind of where we are with production going into season three. So, hello, season three. You are looking a little different, you know, but things change. Well, but I mean, what's the deal? Well, uh, people change, hairstyles change, interest rates fluctuate. Um, I'm sure that this will go well. Um, Hairstyles are not supposed to change, though. I had three questions that
0: I wrote down in the first, <laughs> I don't know, I guess maybe two minutes of this episode. Now, one, I will be honest, I brought with me to season three. Yeah. Um, but the three questions I had written down are, you know, what's with the blue credits? Mm-hmm. What's with Scotty's hair? Yeah. And what's with the poignier insignias? And and this yeah. was actually something I didn't realize until one time. Recently, as we record this, years from now, years from now, or years ago, years from now, however you put that, <laughs> um, I didn't realize. So you go to the conventions, right? And if, right. You're, if you buy patches every time, that, like, like I do for some yeah. reason, same patches, well, I think, you can get uh, season one patches or season three patches from the original series. And yeah, it well. took me until I was buying them this time to
2: realize, oh, season three is pointy. <laughs> well and remember it gets even more complicated when you look at the the pilot episode you look at the cage patches some of those were smaller and some of those are sewn on at a little bit different angle. so yeah things <laughs> definitely definitely change and the fabric of the costumes changed. everything changed It, it sort of uh, I, I said this to someone that it's sort of just like the 70s are banging on the door and they are not going to go away you know yeah. you Got to open the door and let the 70s in. Um, That does not explain Scotty's hair. (laughs) Very little can explain Scotty's hair. But uh, Scotty looks a little bit different. Yeah. Um, You know, the big part of this is, of course, um, what happened between the end of season two and the beginning of season three. We already posted a memo from Gene Roddenberry earlier earlier in 1968 saying hey i'm really going to pay attention to how things go in the third season of star trek so watch <laughs> out with a beer in one hand and like a bowl <laughs> of chips in the other <laughs> right. apparently right.
0: i'm sorry well, i shouldn't i shouldn't make fun i know it was a tumultuous time but yeah yeah that that that, that almost like his famous last words kind of thing
2: it sounds right like. right well, things did change and um Gene took uh, kind of a step away from the show. Uh we also lost uh, Gene Coon's interest in the show, so he was let out of his contract. Uh so from the original kind of big 3, uh we still have Bob Justman on board, but they brought in a new producer, uh Fred Freiberger. And uh he is sort of his stamp on this episode, but it's his stamp, and you have to understand, though, that the budgets have been cut drastically from the first season. So we're on this downward slope, and um, the the demands and kind of the lack of interest uh, from the studio or from the the distributor NBC were well apparent. Uh, the show got moved from what would have been a prime. Time slot to the time slot of death, and that would be Friday night at ten o 'clock, where young people are gone they 're not watching tv they 're not paying attention to TV, so um, as a lot of people say, it was kind of the uh, the self fulfilling prophecy that they are going to let Star Trek die in its third season but hey we 're here at the beginning of the third season, so let 's talk about where we are the the much maligned often mocked uh, lower of expectations. Spock's brain. Shatner has said that he was embarrassed while making this episode. Bob Justin admits to it not being Star Trek's finest hour. Um, it was written by Lee Cronin. Who, you might ask, is Lee Cronin? Well, it is actually Gene Kuhn, and um, the final version is a bit different from his original draft. Ken, any guess as to why Gene Kuhn uh, did not have his name on the script, but it was indeed Lee Cronin?
0: Well, if everybody says it's not
2: the finest hour, I'm guessing maybe he didn't want his name on it. Well, you would think that, but uh, and that might be a good answer, a good logical answer, but in fact, um, he was let out of his contract, and he was working for Universal Studios at the time. Now, part of his deal of being let out of his contract is that he would complete some of the stories that he had started work on earlier in the year, earlier in Star Trek's run. So, it was actually just a contractual thing that he could not have his name on this episode uh, because Gene Kuhn was now working at Universal, not working at Paramount slash Desilu for Star Trek. Um, so let's talk about our new producer, Fred Freiberger. Um, he came in as Gene was kind of walking away from the show. Um, there was a last-minute showdown with NBC kind of over the new time slot. There was some burnout for sure, all of the above. Right. Um, And Star Trek definitely has a different look and feel from here onward. Now, if you follow along with our discovered documents, we have a very interesting article from Variety, January 23rd, 1968. And it's interesting that it's that early That Gene is talking about the burnout from working on a TV show, and you can kind of look at this as a you know a couple of different ways. This is indication of him stepping away from the show, but it might also be one of those sort of negotiation tactics, saying, "Hey, look, I'm going to go on and do bigger and better things," and hoping that uh, that the studio would say, "Oh, no, 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 we we really need you at." Star Trek, uh, because again, this is dated in January of 1968, and uh, the memos that we have run from him talking about really paying attention in season three actually come after that point. Now, Fred Freiberger, ha- uh, Freiberger sorry, uh, had written some sci-fi stories, and uh, he had worked on the show Wild Wild West, uh, but he got the boot after clashing with the studio on that show. Um, he actually turned down Gene Roddenberry's initial offer to produce Star Trek. At the beginning of season one, Um, it conflicted with a vacation and uh, he was kind of burnt out from Wild Wild West. So he could have actually been on the show from the beginning. Um, And there's a lot of kind of discussion about his influence on the show, his influence on later shows. There are a lot of people who say that he is not entirely to blame for the big changes, negative mostly, uh, that occur in season three. But it is worth pointing out that he worked on the last season of Space 1999 and the last season of Six Million Dollar Man, and there may have definitely been some changes in quality on those shows, depending on how you look at it. Um, I want to point out one other document that we have in the archive, um, and that is the cast pickup options. This is a memo written from Bob Justman. And uh, this kind of gives you an idea of going into season three, the mindset of the producers, as they're looking at their cast, I find it to be fascinating for two reasons. One is that it is classic Bob Justman. <laughs> um, it, it is funny it's biting it's very insightful the other thing that's really interesting is their take on the characters and actors who play them um he really makes a case for who is absolutely essential and feeling like that core cast that we know and love have to be brought on board for the next season so do check that out in the discovered documents.
1: Do you get when you subtract one brain from the most logical character on television? You get this.
2: rollar The Enterprise encounters a really interesting ship, an ion-driven craft that sure piques Scotty's interest. Before you know it, the pilot of that ship, a woman, shows up on the bridge of the Enterprise and doesn't say a word, but zaps everybody into unconsciousness. They're all out cold, and she makes a beeline for Spock's cranium. Act 1. All it took was a roll of the opening credits, and the crew is wide awake again. The mysterious lady has vanished, and McCoy drops the bomb on us that... So has Spock's brain. His brain? Yes, his brain. Everything else is there, from his pointed ears to his healthy, greenish glow, but the old gray matter is nowhere to be seen. McCoy is keeping him alive on life support, but he tells Kirk that they've only got about 24 hours to find the brain, but even then, what good will it do? You can't just put a brain back into a body and make it all work again. Kirk is determined, though." The first step is to follow that ion trail left by the mystery ship, and it points to the Sigma Dracona system. There are three Class M planets capable of sustaining life, but they all seem to be dead ends. Uhura picks up a power signature from one, covered in glaciers, so without much else to go on, Kirk aims for that one. Act 2. Kirk, Scotty, Chekhov, and whoever beam down to the surface and almost immediately find themselves in a fight with some big kind of primitive men. Kirk pulls the old, I'll shoot you with my phaser, but now let's talk because I'm your friend routine. And he's not really getting anywhere with the interrogation. This guy doesn't know much of anything. But Kirk and Chekhov piece together that there are no women around, and there seems to be a little confusion about the others who bring either pain or delight. But the Enterprise crew are probably not them. Chekhov is still stuck on this no women around thing, and he's really hoping he can just go back to that planet where he and Martha Landon... Ah, never mind. They do discover a cave that is set up with weapons and food, but it must be a trap, some kind of man trap, as there are sensors all around. This must be the entryway to the underground city, and Kirk has McCoy beam down to meet them. McCoy does just that, and he's got Spock. Um, brainless Spock. Hooked up to a remote control. Time to trip the man-trap, and away go Scotty, Kirk, McCoy, and the artist formerly known as Spock on their way to the underground. Chekov and what's-her-names remain up top. When the elevator doors open in a very mod, technically advanced corridor, they are met by a beautiful woman, and Kirk immediately goes through the old, I'll shoot you with my phaser, but now let's talk because I'm your friend routine. Well, come on, it worked last time, and to be fair, she was reaching for her armband, which seems to be how these dangerous women can render them all helpless. Now we're getting some answers. The men on the surface are Morg, and the women are Imorg. They seem to be in control, but they are kind of intellectually stunted. Then something really weird happens. Well, weirder, I guess, given what we've already been through. Never mind. Never mind. What happens is that Spock's voice comes through on Scotty's communicator. He's somewhere, not sure where, but he's there. They set off to find Spock, but just as they round the corner, who shows up but the mystery woman who originally appeared on the Enterprise. She must know about Kirk's little shoot-first-and-ask-questions-later trick by now, because she wastes no time in reaching for the armband and knocking out the crew cold. Act 3. Now awake... The crew are seated in front of Kara, the woman who knocked them out and seems to be in charge. But she's really not. She doesn't understand all the questions about Spock's brain, and she does say that there is a controller who runs the city. Kirk and McCoy put the pieces together. Spock's brain is hooked up to the city. He is the controller. The landing party are given the opportunity to leave, but Kirk says, no, they'll stay. Even though they are not getting anywhere with Kara, and even though they are now wearing some kind of pain-inflicting Tupperware belt, they're left in a room with a couple of burly security guards. Time for a quick fight, then on to their communicators to check in again with Spock's brain. Spock's doing all right. All of his brain functions are working. He's breathing, pumping blood, regulating body temperature. In fact, he's so okay with this, maybe they shouldn't bother trying to restore him. That would be really difficult, after all. Kirk says, really? We are on our way to put your brain back in your body, whether you like it or not. Disembodied Spock directs them to the room of the controller, but who should show up again? It's Kara. She's ready to inflict some pain through those Tupperware belts, but Kirk is able to reach for the Spock remote and directs, what should we call him at this point, zombie Spock? To grab her hand and disable the pain devices. Finally, we're going to make some sense out of this. Spock's brain is being used as the CPU for a giant city-controlling computer. Air, water, temperature, everything is being run off his brain power. Kara has no idea how to take out or replace a brain, and she's not inclined to help anyway. Without the controller, their city will die. Kirk pushes Kara for some more information. She used the teacher, which is a device created by the original builders of the city. It stores the old knowledge and gives one a temporary boost in mental faculties. Kara puts on the teacher a kind of helmet and after a few seconds can now confront Kirk at a much more advanced intellectual level. Oh, and it doesn't hurt that she also grabbed his phaser just in case intellect doesn't work. I'm sure Kirk can understand. Act 4... In a show of who's got the oldest trick in the book, Scotty is ready to outdo them all with the old I'm fainting but it's really just a distraction so Kirk can get the phaser out of the woman's hand ruse. And he does. Kara still refuses to help with their plan. McCoy volunteers, though, even against Spock's advice. This alien technology may work on him well enough since he already has medical knowledge. The knowledge will wear off, but there should be enough time to perform the operation. McCoy is ready to do it. He puts on the teacher helmet and it's all very clear to him, so easy even a child could do it. While well, he gets to work on Spock's brain, Kirk gets to work on completely changing the paradigm of Kara's entire civilization. You and the men will work with each other, you'll work hard, you'll keep each other warm, uh, we may even help you a little bit, hey, it will be awesome. For McCoy, things are going along well enough until the knowledge starts to wear off. He's getting confused and frustrated. In a last ditch, he connects Spock's ability to speak, and from there on, Spock will help direct McCoy in completing the neural pathways. After a few moments, Spock is upright, and he's about as giddy as a Vulcan can be in recounting the whole experience. One thing that didn't wear off McCoy, though, was the ability to take a jab, and at that point, he wishes out loud that he could have not reconnected Spock's mouth.
0: Spock's mouth, by the way, is the worst episode of Star Trek. So already, yeah, really, already. Yeah. Spock's brain. <laughs> you know, there's at least one bad one coming. One more. Yeah. Spock's mouth. Actually, maybe
2: that's in the animated. I series. was going to say that might maybe. be animated.
0: Now that I think about it, that's that's like when the and the taste buds attacked and and the cavity creeps and it was all Spock's mouth in color. It was really for kids.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, hey, uh, how about a uh, how about a drinking game? You take a shot every time somebody mentions the title of the show within the show. You mean like
0: like like the one time they said the Changeling, then the fifty eight times they said
2: Spock's brain. Yeah, you would be passed out by the end of Act Two. You would, That's but true. it would be funny. Yeah,
0: I gotta say though, and, and and to give this episode maybe a little bit more credit than normal, uh, somebody actually one time when you and I were in Las Vegas together. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one of the uh, many Star Trek conventions we're bound to have been to by the time somebody hears this. Um, <laughs> yes, we actually had a, a listener come up and say, "Hey, don't disbox brain when you get to it, because mm-hmm. you, you got to bear in mind what was going on at the time." And I'm like, "Zombies? What? Right. Pod people? What are you talking about? Organ transplants?" The gentleman yeah. said. Now. It, it, you know, it's that whole thing. When we talk about race relations, we say, you know, well, let's let's think about the concept. You know, let's think about the time that it actually happened in. And when we talk about, you know, a private little war, we're like, well, it's, it's, it's 1968 and Vietnam is raging on. Didn't even occur to me to think about, you know, there are going to be people out there who might be a little weirded out by the brain. Tra- I mean, well, not brain transplant. That <laughs> one still. <laughs> right. No, but the whole organ transplant thing. Did a, did a tiny little, tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of research on uh, yeah. Wikipedia. Yeah. So there's that. But yep. um, according to this, the first – okay, there were, like, there were like cornea transplants and skin transplants and, or skin grafts sort of like uh, as early as the 1800s. The cornea was like early 1900s. Mm-hmm. But the first, like I think, what we would really consider an organ transplant uh, was, was, a, was a kidney transplant in
2: 1954.
0: Hmm. And then uh, skip ahead a few years. The first heart transplant was in 1967. Wow. Now, uh, obviously, any one of those things is not quite the same as a brain, but this is almost not nearly, you know, uh, as it happens or happening now or, or torn from today's headlines, like you were saying last week about um, about assignment Earth. But I mean, there actually is there actually is a little bit of uh, no. OK, well, we've done we've done the We've done the uh, the, you know, the kidney. We've done the heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, a brain transplant is not quite there. I, I thought it was an interesting thing. And as usual, I can't remember that person's name, but you know, let's be honest. Half the time, I can't remember Shatner's name. So, <laughs> thank you very much for sharing your your yeah. insight, sir. And I'm sorry that I can't I, I can't you know call you out by name, but you're that guy who said that thing that time.
2: Yeah, thank you for that. It's interesting to point out the little the the line of influence that that must have been there. Um, yeah. So I thought that was very cool. Yeah. Hey, uh, when we were talking about the various changes, and I know that you're very interested in the change in Scotty's hair, that that's really just it's kind of shocking. It's, it is. It's, it's troubling it's and shocking. Troubling. It'll be difficult for you to get over. It I know, troubles but... me. <laughs> Did you notice anything different about the shots on the bridge? Well, I mean, I kept wanting to yell
0: down in front because what? for the first time, <laughs> usually they say, you know, uh, on screen. And mm-hmm. then you'll, you'll switch to a, a shot of something on screen. And yep. then, you know, you'll switch back to, you know, them watching it. And Kirk's, like, right up there with the screen. And he's like, hey, Chekhov, tell me about these planets. And Chekhov goes and gets his laser pointer and comes up and says, if you look mm-hmm. here, okay, he doesn't really get a laser pointer. That would have been <laughs> right. and And been cool. really forward thinking. Right. But, yeah, at one point, they're, like, watching something. And there goes a yeoman, I think, just walking by, mm-hmm. walking by the screen there. And then there's another engineer dude. He goes walking by the screen there. There's lots of walking by the screen. Now, there doesn't seem to be any need. I did want to yell down in front, like I said. Right. Well, you know,
2: usually up until now, what we've seen is a standard stock shot looking at the view screen, and then they will just pop in whatever they need to yes. in green screen as an optical effect in post. Yes. Uh, and, but what we have here is actually only the second time in the original run and the final time in the original run that we actually have a rear projection shot, and the actors can move in front. Uh, and, and even not moving, but just the shot of the helm and navigation, where you can actually see heads in the way of what's on the view screen. So it was huh. kind of a rarity. And we, we have different angles of the bridge that we really haven't seen before or since. I thought that was kind of cool.
0: <laughs> well, it is kind of cool. I'm, I'm sad to hear that yeah, no more. Uh, right. <laughs> All right.
2: Well, wait a few years, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into other shows where uh, the effects were a little more advanced. But uh, kind of a cool thing to point out. Hey, another cool thing, when Chekhov and Kirk were having that conversation about the planets uh, in that system, did you notice that we got a, uh, a lesson in the stages of development of class M planets? And they were very, very specific. I, I loved how grade B is, <laughs> Kirk just calls it, boom, 1485. Yep. Grade G, 2030. Yeah. He memorized this stuff. What's like a C minus? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. He's going to call it like uh, you know, eleven thirty-eight BC <laughs> on on Tuesday.
0: There, there, they were actually. So when we're considering these planets, these like Mama Bear, Papa Bear, Baby Bear kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. There were two things that I that, that occurred to me. First of all, I'm not sure why we assume that the technology actually originated from one of these planets. They were sure. going to one of these planets, but for some reason, we're assuming that it came from one of those planets. Right. Uh, which struck me as a bit weird, I got to say, uh, uh, points to Chekhov for really whiffing his guest, followed by uh, <laughs> Sulu for really whiffing his. And they're, they're both like, eh, could be that one. I mean, it's pretty
1: much it, right? He's <laughs> right.
0: like, oh, that one's the most advanced of the three, but it's really not advanced enough to do what we're talking about. And Chekhov's like, no, no, it's only this one, because there are more people there. <laughs> and right. just like, you're both nuts. We're going to the one with next to nobody on it. And, of course, that ends up being right because Kirk's got gut.
2: Yeah. yeah. He gets lucky a lot in this show. Oh, eh. you call well, it Well, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. You call it
0: luck. I'm just saying, oh, well, he does get lucky a lot, too. Yeah. yeah. Hey, can I ask about something that we haven't seen before? Sure. Oh, it's kind of chilly. Everybody, set your suits to 72. <laughs> really? You know who could have used those? <laughs> Who's Every, that? Everybody on the planet yeah. with the dog in the unicorn costume and the enemy within. Oh yeah! Remember yeah. when Sulu's like dying, and that's like the whole thing, and that's why oh we gotta we gotta hurry up and get you know uh, Logie Kirk and Alt Kirk back together because Sulu's gonna freeze. Right. Radio down to set his suit to seventy two. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I could have used that in August in Vegas as well. <laughs> you know, that yeah. been a nice thing to have. No kidding. Any any you know random August actually
0: time. Vegas yeah. is cold inside. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which sounds like that that could
2: actually be a novel. Right. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> hey, I, I got worried for a minute there. J- just a, a brief flash that Scotty was still having some problems with women ever since Wolf in the Fold. Because we, we get down to the underground city and uh, the women are coming around. And, and Scotty's the one to point out. I was like, yeah, there's not an engineer in the bunch, you know. <laughs> and I, I start to like, oh, Scotty, I hope you didn't get hit on the head again. I, well, uh, hopefully that hair will protect
0: you. I was really hoping that what he was saying was, I mean, because it was – because the women were obviously in control there, that yeah. he was just saying none of these women. Right, right. Not, right. you know, well a woman couldn't do that. I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I opted to think that what he was talking about was uh, was was those women. I, I I was thinking
2: that the rest of that line was, but I'm sure that the other women that we meet later will be the technically <laughs> advanced engineers that I really want to talk to. Yeah. I, you, yeah. Well. I yes.
0: There's <laughs> right. so much about a lot of that that I don't understand, but I guess we might get to it in the next segment. Um, sure. The thing yeah. that I, actually what I was wondering about was the whole idea of the the givers of pain and delight. First of mm-hmm. all. Pavel Chekhov, a little um oh what's the word I'm looking for? Parochial. Oh yeah. Kirk says, what was it he said? Pain and delight? And Chekhov says, peculiar mixture. And Kirk mm. says, well, it depends but... Oh yes, you're you're right. That is a <laughs> yeah, peculiar bit, mixture. Very yes. peculiar. Yeah. yeah. Moving on. But <laughs> actually but I i I actually I, I I got I don't want to say I got stuck on that idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> It actually solves the Landru uh, "Return of the Archons" problem of how you know people are reproducing. We had a listener uh, quite a while ago actually say that they thought that that's what Red Hour was. That mm-hmm. Red Hour was you know how you you kept peopling the planet, right? Um, for Landru, you know when when people don't have wills of their own or minds of their own or even you know an idea that they want to get together with anybody, right? So I mean I, I'm guessing that that's the you know the peculiar mixture he's talking about about pain and delight because we don't get the sense that the women you know care mm-hmm. about anything about the guys they're just mm-hmm. you know and yet we know that there is some delight and you know they do the whole layering sexist I guess I mean it's not sexist to say that somebody's attractive but you know sure, you, yeah. you say it, it, it's how you say somebody's attractive yeah you yeah. know I mean that all of a sudden you're in a boys' club. The thing is, I gotta figure this whole thing is by remote control for the women, since they seem to have zero knowledge of, you know, the dirty deed, by which I, of course, mean the devil's business. Oh, by by which I, of course, mean doing it.
2: Oh, oh, thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> I gotta
0: think the whole thing is by remote control. Yeah. Speaking of which, <laughs> you mentioned this a moment ago. Um, mm-hmm. I think McCoy might be selling himself short on his brain surgery abilities, unless mm. that thing on Spock's head is standard issue
2: thank you from yes. starfleet because right.
0: if you can hook one of those up to control the body without a brain yeah putting a brain in something should be a notch now yeah. <laughs> i'm wondering how he was like at remote control cars and remote control planes and stuff when he was a kid because those little two button remote control you know like you push this button to make it turn left push this one to make it turn right i guess yeah. three because one is for forward and reverse i bumped those into walls Yeah, I I would crash those things constantly. Quickly and easily. Yeah, like I've been thinking about getting one of those, you know, helicopter drone things that they're selling everywhere for very little money. I think, you know, to get us comfortable with the idea that there are going to be things in the sky from now on. (laughs) Right. I've been thinking about getting one and I'm like, but I know it would take me like seven minutes to wreck it. And yet... Mm -hmm. Bones can just be, yo, look look what I built. I built a a remote control Spock, and I'm not going to bump him into any walls. (laughs) Oh, sure, I'm tempted, but I'm so good at remote control. I want you guys to know how good I am at it. Oh, here, Scotty, why don't you take a turn? And Scotty takes it, and he's like, hey, guiding him around, no problem at all. And Kirk is, like, having his insides ripped out, or at least that's right. what we're giving to think that it feels like when that's happening. Right. Oh, let, me just, let me just remote control Spock over to you to grab your hands using just two, you know, two buttons. Basically. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> grab your hands, overpower you. I, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's part of their Starfleet training.
2: Maybe. It's like remote yeah.
0: controlling everything.
2: Yeah. If you end up in a situation where a brain has been removed and you need to use the remote body controller, here's how you do it. <laughs> exactly. that, that's like day three of Starfleet training. But I mean, but you've only got
0: six buttons. <laughs> yeah, Right. You've right. got six buttons, I believe, on there. And so it's like mm-hmm. you have to learn a number of combinations as well. It's like okay, if you push this button and push this one. He's gonna avoid himself, so really don't push those. But if you push this one and this one, well, then he will reach up and grab the wrist of the person that hopefully he's standing in front of when you push those buttons. Otherwise, he's just grabbing it, air, and and you can't run my remote control
2: car because you'll just wreck it. <laughs> exactly. Hey, uh, can we mention McCoy uh, very quickly here because I, I think he's kind of great in this. And, and by McCoy, I mean, it, it, yes, also the actor, DeForest Kelly, is pretty great in this. But the character is pretty great in this, too. Um, he must have really been listening when Kirk gave his Risk is Our Business speech uh, because he's the one to just jump in and say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the risk. This is what we do. And he's, he's good to do it. And also, he looks insane, I love the shots with the blue uplight and oh, he's got yeah. that eyebrow cocked and I, he's just wonderful. He, he's great delivering the line that it's so simple the child could do it. And then he's equally great a minute later when he's freaking out because he can't do it. I just <laughs> love him in
0: this. When he's knee deep in neuron and it's, it's like starting <laughs> right. to slip. Yeah, I completely dig his mad scientist montage yeah, as he yeah. reinstalls Spock's brain. Although the whole thing did leave me with one question. McCoy has said from the beginning that he has no idea how you know to possibly reinstall a brain if it yeah. happens, right? And then he finds out how much time he'll have to do it, and he's like, that's exactly how much time I would
2: need. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. It's like, it can't be done. It can't be done. I'll need about three hours. Oh, three hours? Yeah, well, I can do it in three hours. I'm sorry. I didn't
0: realize. I uh, Yeah, put that salad bowl on my head. Let's get to work.
1: That is what you get when you subtract Spock's brain from Spock. Now, what do you get when you add Spock's brain to a great home automation system?
2: Ken, one of the reasons I've been looking forward to this episode is is that it just brought up a a topic that I thought was begging to be addressed. So, Ken, I I have to ask you, given your fetish for Dr. Roger Corby and the idea (laughs) of moving your neural pathways into a robot body. Yeah. Uh, it, please just give me in in your mind. Is this a, a better option, a worse option, uh, an equal some option to actually have your brain put into the giant black box? Because uh, apparently Spock was doing okay with it. For me,
0: yeah. Uh, for me, I don't like it because you can't move around. I mean, one of the okay. cool things would be, you know, the ability to get up and go. That the good people at Corby Industries were giving to all the people, you know, who, were, yeah. <laughs> right. who they were, you know, putting in there. Um, I will say, though, for Spock, this actually strikes me as an opportunity that Spock wouldn't pass up mm-hmm. to live in thought for 10,000 years or more. Yeah. You know, and, and to, you know, who knows, broker peace and understanding between the Morgues and the Imorgs, and, mm-hmm. you know, to foster and maybe even nurture a race that could match or even rival the Vulcans. This actually seems to me to be a, this is like a total Spock thing. Yeah. and. Forgive the timeline jump, but it's also a total Spock thing in that he is the one who tends to say the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Now, granted, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody came to him and said, hey, got these, you know, 500 to 1,000 people. We don't know how many there are. Got these 500 to 1,000 people, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people who are going to die if they don't have mm-hmm. a brain in the jar. Can it be yours? I don't think Spock would say, yeah, go ahead. I think he would probably still, you know, kind of hold off on that. Yeah. But once there, I mean, he actually asked the question, why are you endangering your lives coming here? Yeah. Because to Spock, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Um, And then Kara actually says it later to 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 Kirk. Can you not understand that the need of my people for the controller is greater than the need that you have for your friend? Yeah.
2: Well, well Spock would totally
0: be on board with that.
2: Exactly. It's, I, I found that the whole thing is like the, the psychology of Spock, you know, the, the, brings up two great ideas in, in this episode um, that, he, yes, exactly. Spock is mentally disciplined in a way that he is good with that. Now, if it were a human and particularly if it were Kirk, the first thing you would hear would be put on the helmet, put me in my body. No, no, no. McCoy, go to the helmet, put it on. I want to be back in my body now. Right. Go do it. I don't care. Right. <laughs> you know, but Spock has this interesting mental discipline. And like you said, that tenet of uh, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, I thought was great. It, it kind of ties back to this idea that we really didn't touch upon in by any other name. Uh, but one of our listeners brought up uh, that civilization, like the IMORGs, uh, were just trying to survive. They didn't know or care who we were, but they saw us as a convenience to get to where they needed to be. Um, so it raises this idea of, well, what are our limits when it comes to doing that for self-preservation? You know, Kara has a point that, that has to be respected. You know, to her, Kirk is ready to upend their entire civilization. Now, little does she know that Kirk does this. <laughs> so <laughs> this is just kind of a thing for him. Yeah, they, um, just, they just cut
0: and paste from uh, the apple.
2: Yeah right. That <laughs> right.
0: speech was. I mean, it's not. It's not as good. It's yeah. It's not as good a speech. I mean, th- this episode, honestly, to me, was like part. What are little girls made of? And it's funny, not for the same reason that you're talking about. To me, the part that was <laughs> what are little girls made of was because of the mention of the old ones. Yeah, right. Which, you know, I mean it's not not the same old ones, obviously, or we assume. Right. Because those old ones would have just built these new ones, robots, and it all would have been good. Mm-hmm. It's part Return of the Archons and that you know, there's the there's the uh, sort of Uber control from somebody else and also kind of the uh, separation from what makes them human. Mm-hmm. Um and then part the apple, including the bit of the speech from the apple. And the apple it was it was it was rousing though. It was like you'll build for yourselves, yada blah, duh. We call it freedom <laughs> and you'll like it a lot. Right. <laughs> right. And this time Kirk's like, yeah, okay, you'll build stuff, you'll hang out with the men, it's uh it'll be fine. Oh, you'll keep each other warm. Yeah, we'll help. Uh Maybe for a bit. But I I think it'll be okay. I I actually honestly think he says, I think it'll be okay. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) He's not quite as sold on it this time, but maybe it's because he's given the Kirk speech a few times now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Maybe he can just sort of judge. He's was like, "All right, well, well, this will work on uh, on the the planet, but the followers of all, okay, it'll work." This one I'm not so sure. So I'm not going to put everything into it. <laughs> I'm just going to I'm just going to sort of lead her up to it, and then we'll we'll see how it goes from there. That, that could well
0: be it. That could well be it.
2: There's a thing kind of at play in this episode, though, about knowledge. You know, who gets it, who abuses it, who uses it for control. Surely you are a fan of Forbidden Planet. Or or you've seen Forbidden Planet. I've seen
0: Forbidden Planet. It's honestly yeah. been a long time. It was very formative for me when I was a kid, honestly. Mm-hmm. When I was like ten or eleven, I know it was on Showtime and I had Showtime when I was ten or eleven. And back when Showtime, you know, played movies.
2: Showed yeah. movies, yeah. I mean like yeah. like
0: old movies and good movies and actually made a they made a big deal about the fact that they had Forbidden Planet. And well they should have. It's just visually stunning.
2: Yeah, and, and it was a big influence on Gene Roddenberry for creating Star Trek. So yes. one of the things that was really cool here is that the, the Krell machine in Forbidden Planet is very reminiscent of this teaching machine. Um, also see Doc Brown in Back to the Future, but for different purpose. Um, but the idea here that that we and they can only hold so much And the knowledge contained therein is is kind of dangerous, certainly dangerous for McCoy because of the the alien interface that Spock is worried about. Um, But there's something very interesting about the control there if you walk through how they arrived at this point. Um, Kara can only have the knowledge for a set amount of time. Anybody who wears it can only have the knowledge for a set amount of time. And then they go back to being the way that they were. But you kind of have to ask, well, well what is the end game? Did, did the original controllers, the original old ones who built this thing, assume that we're going to get to a point where everybody could have the knowledge again and, and work to rebuild their world? Or do they just say, no, th- this is it. This is as good as we can do. Nobody can have too much for too long of a time. Because yeah. um, this has been going on for a very, very long time. Yeah, I actually, I I, kind of wondered about that,
0: too. I mean, there's, uh, again, the similarities between this and the Apple and um, Return of the Archons Mm -hmm. uh, are are kind of interesting to me. I mean, Landru, Landru, we got the sense, was keeping everybody down. And I personally thought that was because that was just the easiest way to control them. Right, Vol, I know a lot of people think, was keeping everybody down. I personally think that Vol was... Taking care of who he could take care of,
1: yeah,
2: he
0: couldn't take care of that many, so he sort of you know took the whole idea of you know, of coupling out of the equation, but instead what I'll do is i 'll feed you forever and I'll keep you healthy forever, and you'll be happy forever okay mm-hmm. um what's going on with the old ones here i mean it's kind of it's kind of up to you, I mean there is something weird about separating the men and the women, although the the women do of course bring um why can't I hold on to that why can't I hold on to that quote? The the pain and delight, the women oh, yeah, yeah, the women yeah, yeah. do bring the delight. I mean, I think that's controlled by the machines. But again, that's just to keep the society going. So it seems like it's the whole thing is done to keep everybody alive and healthy. But mm-hmm. then, what I found myself wondering is, okay, so is that leading to them sort of deteriorating mentally, or are they being deteriorated mentally intentionally? Does does like does the the whole working of the thing? Make her smart for a little while or does it make everybody dumb? Because, yeah, because, because right. a dumb populace is much more easy to control, I think, than an intelligent populace. But then, of course, we get the question of were the ancient ones trying to control the population or were they just trying to keep it alive?
2: But but again, then you know what would be the point if you're just keeping them alive for the sake of keeping them alive? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go all Kirk on you. <laughs> Where where's the progress? What are they doing then? It, they're just sort of stagnant and they're all dumb. Um, I, I I sort of like to think that there was something in mind that once this uh, climate crisis, this planetary crisis, had passed, that there was an idea somehow of restoring. Their, their civilization back to where it was. Yeah, maybe. Know?
0: Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting.
2: This has just been like a sociological trip, an anthropological trip for the enterprise. They show up. Uh, oh, look, here's a planet where the women are down below and the men are on top and some are computer controlled and some are not. Okay, no, no, they're, all, they're all computer <laughs> yeah. controlled. They're all computer controlled. Well, they controlled. are.
0: They are, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of the weird thing. It, I mean, it's, it, what was going on with the women was especially interesting to me um, and not for not for any sort of <laughs> nefarious reason i realized suddenly that sounds kind of odd it is curious though that we have um on more than one occasion seen societies that are either run or maintained by machines mm-hmm. or driven underground where minds flourish um mm-hmm. i mud that's what that's what norman said had happened they had like you know they built these robots to to go out and do the hard work and then people Could actually get down to the really, you know, thinking and and creating and building without having to worry about, you know, do I have to kill that guy or is that guy going to kill me or, you know, am I going to get hit by a rock when I go out into space? Um, This is what Daystrom said the idea was behind the ultimate computer. Leave leave the dangerous stuff to somebody else and then men can actually really, you know, get in their heads and, and come up with some amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. This is actually one of the things I think Spock would have totally grooved on. Actually, Spock would have <laughs> right. thoroughly Spock would have created a completely different thing had he been their ruler for uh, ten thousand years or a hundred thousand years, or however long it was. Right. Even the Telosians, despite their you know inability to build anything, you know, went underground and just their brains just I mean their brains literally got big. I mean <laughs> they 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 yeah. their mental powers were insane. Um, and yet these, these women go underground and their mental abilities deteriorate Mm -hmm. in a way that, I mean, I guess maybe the feeders of all had done that, but we don't get, I don't, I mean, it's, it's hard to know if the feeders of all had done that or if the feeders of all were just blissed out because it's always sunny in 72, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it was an interesting treatment of something that we've seen treated differently a couple of times before.
1: This holiday season, give the boy or girl in your life what they really want. Life-size remote control Spock, available now from Hamucker Schlemmer The sharper image and select radio shack locations.
0: Messages and morals and meanings. What is messages and morals <laughs> and meanings? <laughs> so hard to figure out when you're talking about something like – uh well, it's actually – this – okay, remember how – you know that time – all right. <laughs> you know how you and I – when you and I first recorded our first two pilots for this show, we decided we're going to do a heavy show like a mock time. We're going to do a light show like Trouble with Tribbles. And sure. I honestly thought that Trouble with Tribbles was going to be difficult because it's a light show like Trouble with Tribbles and so we're not going to be able to pull anything out of it. And I honestly right. feel like we got at least as much if not more out of Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Spock's brain um has a stigma the episode does. Yeah. there's actually a, there's a decent amount here to play with i think but but i i'm sorry, I am answering the question, and I should have asked you the question instead
2: uh does this episode hold up to you John well i mean here 's the thing. we just made it through this entire discussion about Spock's brain without talking about how awful Spock's brain is yeah it, you know and, and I think that's sort of the expectation and um it, uh, certainly, going into it, the, this episode is so shrouded in the the, the sort of pop culture uh, understood derision mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that it gets. Um, so it was interesting to me to be able to approach this uh, knowing that, but but hoping to find something else in it. This episode is cheesy. It, it stretches the believability that that the audience is trying to. Uh, uh, gain from the show or impart onto the show. And and it feels more like Batman or season three of the men from uncle than, than some of the really great star Trek that we've seen before. Somehow it's not nearly as bad as people think. Um, It's very different. And, and that's part of the trouble here is that you're, you leap into season three, things look different. They feel different. So it doesn't feel like the star Trek that we've seen up until now, and that kind of throws you for a little bit of a jolt. But I think the biggest problem with the episode is they spent all the time on the least interesting thing, which is RoboSpock and putting Spock's brain back in. The more interesting stuff here, the the hard sci-fi concepts are are kind of fascinating. The idea of a biological computer that is run by a brain. The idea of this schism that occurred in this world where. Some went below, some stayed above. You know, we're back on Sargon territory here uh, with Return to Tomorrow. What happened to this world and how did they deal with it? And what's the upside and what's the downside? There's all great stuff here. But then you have to lay the fault of the episode at the writing, I'm afraid. And, and whatever <laughs> changes occurred in the writing uh, that then were, were the, a result of the reality of the production. So that was just really the, the unfortunate thing about this episode. It could have been a, a really kind of engaging, engrossing mental exercise for science fiction fans. But what we ended up with was something that was very silly. But it yeah. was really nice to be able to watch this and separate all that. There is – you know?
0: yeah, well, yeah. I mean to me, the thing that makes this episode hardest to watch is the fact that they keep saying brain. Mm-hmm. And that may that may sound crazy, but it's just it's so ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> the idea that, you know, his brain is gone. But if we get his brain back, then everything's going to be OK. And McCoy, you know, for part of the episode, it's like, uh, I can't just put his brain back in. Right. Yeah, they're right. still like, I'm going to go find the brain. Everybody uh, look under your chair. Is there a brain No. All right. <laughs> I mean, that, that's sort of ridiculous. And, and that's 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 it's it's that's where it becomes so campy. Mm-hmm. that it's hard to take it seriously. But if you try to take it seriously, there is actually a tremendous amount of stuff. Well, I'm sorry, the other thing the other thing is really bad is when Spock is talking McCoy through his own brain surgery. Oh gosh. That was yeah. actually terrible. I mean, it's so Painful. so yeah. the brain part all the way through was kind of bad, and then then, then wrapping it up in like 30 seconds with Spock going, mm-hmm. "Hey, you know, crazy <laughs> then yeah. and, and then we're done. There's actually quite a bit here that would be fascinating. I keep saying this, it's 48 minutes, you've only got 48 minutes, and it's 1968, and so you don't necessarily have the kind of, you know, multi-show arc kind of thing. You have not had, uh, certainly there's been a lot of intelligent science fiction at that point, but the the two things that I kept thinking about are, are first of all, is there any way for for Kirk to to reconsider his idea of mortality? I mean, there's no way he's going to leave without Spock. There's no way he's going to leave without trying to put Spock's brain back into Spock's body, but Spock was, in fact, alive. Yeah, Kirk keeps saying, well, oh, Spock will die. Well, no. No. <laughs> Spock's body will die. But, I mean, that's their part and parcel as far as, you know, Kirk is concerned. See also what our little girl's made of. <laughs> um, the other thing that I kept thinking about was McCoy and, and how would he deal – with having had all of that knowledge and not having that knowledge anymore. And, of course, mm. in this episode, we come dangerously close to a group laugh, but we don't get no. there. But, I mean, all, they, all we
2: missed was the freeze frame at the end. Right, right,
0: know? right. They, they, they sum it up, though, with, with McCoy basically being the same old McCoy, and, oh, that same old Spock, and, okay, nothing that happened this week is ever going to affect anything, so don't worry. Mm. It's, <laughs> still, it's still your Star Trek, all right? McCoy reminded me, honestly, of uh, Flowers for Algernon, Charlie and Flowers for Algernon.
2: Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, um yeah.
0: for people who haven't read it or who haven't read it since they were in high school. Um and you know, assuming you're not still in high school, because some of you may be. Hey kid, mm-hmm. how's it going? All right. <laughs> so uh, Flowers for Algernon. Um uh, Charlie is this is this guy who is who's um got the mental capacity of a child. Um, he's an adult. I think he's a I think he's like a isn't he like a maintenance man or something or a cleaning man? Mm. Yeah. And he ends up getting this uh, surgery or procedure, where he becomes one of the smartest people on the planet. But then the problem is he starts to lose that. It turns out whatever the procedure is is not permanent. And Charlie's actually okay with it once once it's all done. But the problem is he's conscious of it while it's happening. Right. I don't know that McCoy would actually be nearly as cool at the end of this episode. To, you know, because both he and Scotty say, "Wow." they could teach us stuff. Scotty actually says that boy, they could teach us some stuff about, you know, building spaceships. And McCoy is, you know, kind of jazzed by what he's going to be able to learn. And you're right. He's got this, like, you know, this look of wonder how simple this whole thing is going to be. And he's in there and he's, he's like knee deep in Spock's brain and he's putting it back in and it's all good. And he starts to lose that. I, I think that would actually be something that would screw McCoy up if these 48 minutes were ever going to affect another 48 minutes in Star Trek.
2: Well, you're kind of back to this idea that we've touched on a lot, which is in Star Trek, you're not quite ready for that knowledge. You know, you, you yeah. have to earn it. <laughs> you have to. Uh, uh, Scotty cannot just be handed a warp engine the size of a walnut <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as much as he wants it. Um, but Although we you have. You heard him think about it, right? He's like, wow. Oh, oh I'm like totally. I'm like a crack at that, you know, salad bowl, whatever it was yeah, called, right. the, the teacher. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, you guys haven't heard of this uh, walnut sized uh, warp engine, have you? Because uh, we heard about it in another place at another time. Um, we, we've had that happen a few times in, uh, in Star Trek where it's like, well, okay, we can kind of get close to the knowledge, but then it's dangerous if we have too much of it or we haven't arrived at it before we're ready, you know? Um, so, all of that. I thought it was just really cool, really interesting to to think about with this episode. The problem is the episode isn't thinking about it that hard. <laughs> you and I are, no. you know, but that, that's the downfall of the show.
0: Well, but I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, the fact that there is that much there to play with actually does make it kind of an exciting episode. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to say Cat's Paw was trying to be campy and mm-hmm. in trying to be campy, it missed and it failed, I think. I yeah. don't think this episode was trying to be campy. In its camp, it's actually kind of wonderful. I mean, mm-hmm. I, to say does this episode hold up it strikes me as a little bit unfair. I'm, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure this episode can hold up, but I'm not sure this episode held up the night that it premiered in 1968. I don't, right. I don't know how it was reviewed, you know, that week. But um, I mean, this was never, this was never going to be an episode full of gravitas, and yet there's something, and maybe it's because it is so maligned. Maybe it's because it's so maligned. That if you can go back and look at it with a fresh pair of eyes, what you're going to see is, this is not nearly as bad as everybody has made it out to be. Oh, it's bad. Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, it is. But there's it a lot of cheesy. great. There's a lot yeah. of
0: great stuff there to play with. So then, as far as the message goes, is that your message? Like you, you, you know, was it Morrissey? You just haven't earned it yet, baby. I mean, is, uh, is yeah. it that we got to keep working? <laughs> is that our humanity? See, the humanity thing doesn't even work though, because Spock's not human. Right. Just just our right. ability to walk around and. Not have computers take care of us. <laughs> I don't. And, and well, it,
2: maybe, maybe. I, I,
0: I. Which makes it an old, which makes it an old Star Trek idea.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it gets near that. It's just not as clever and nuanced as other Star Trek that has approached that. Hmm. All right. So I guess my
0: whole answer with this is, I would actually put this a little bit better than fine. We we've done it before, where like this is mm-hmm. great, this is terrible, and this is fine. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would put this a tiny bit above. This is fine.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> which is I, so
0: noncommittal, I apologize, but that's where I, I, I am.
2: I will see you, and I will raise you one it, that it's fine, and then the the asterisk is also easy to lampoon. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. so so it is enjoyable in that respect because it is so weird. Um, but if you pay attention. And you, you kind of think beyond the, the limitations of just what we're given on screen. There's meaty stuff. They just didn't quite figure out how to handle it. And they got lost in the whole idea of zombie Spock and brain in a box. You know, some of the, uh, some of the favorite emails that we get are the ones that say, you know,
0: you guys made me take a second look at this episode. Um, it is at least as common, if not more so, uh, to get emails saying, you're high.
2: You're insane. Yes. Exactly.
0: So, if you want to tell us that we're right about uh, Spock's brain or we're wrong about Spock's brain or that we miss something entirely about Spock's brain, and there are actually several ways that you can do that on Facebook, on Skype, on Twitter, on Donner, on Blitzen. The handle is Mission Log Pod. Uh, you can call us 323 522 5641. That number again is 323 522 5641. Reindeer not included on that one. You can email us, missionlog at Roddenberry.com. That email address again is missionlog at Roddenberry.com. Don't forget, we may use your comments
2: on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, Ken, uh, next week, you remember that one time that one thing happened on the Enterprise? Well, we're going to talk about it because it's the Enterprise incident.
1: Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp11, online at warp11.com, and from the album messages by Key Theory, free to download at k.i.theory.com. Removing a main character's brain was surprisingly entertaining. Let's do Kirk's brain next. And transmission now leaving Nerdist.com.